Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening. Tonight I want to speak to you. Don't you listen to your radio? No, I'd like to talk to you tonight. I could listen to you talk all night. Welcome to the night. Mr. Bradley. Bradley Jason L. Next caller, you're on the air. While the conversation. A little conversation. We will find you searching for your producer. And we have Eric J. Dolan in the house, D-O-L-I-N. How do you do, sir? I'm fine. How are you? Great to have you here. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. Among other books, we're going to talk about Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. <laughs> so that's kind of fun for you. Was it fun to write? Oh, it was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So what is a pirate? In our pre-interview, I, may, I, I showed that it's important to Asked that question because I was wrong. I mixed up privateer and pirate a couple times. Right. Uh, privateer is basically during a time of war, governments were able to issue privateering licenses or letters of mark that gave merchant ships, armed merchant ships, the right to attack the enemies of that country during time of war. And then if they captured a ship, they could bring it back to the country and have it brought before an admiralty court and get a percentage of the profits from that ship. So it was sort of a way of amplifying your navy during a time of war when you didn't have enough of your own warships. People call it licensed piracy because it sort of sounds like piracy, but it was in fact legal at the time. Piracy, as I talk about it in the book, are people that didn't have a letter of mark or a real letter of mark or privateering license, and they would not just attack an enemy of any country, they would attack any ship that had potential plunder on board. Were there different rules of engagement for ships of the line and for privateers? Did, were, the, were the rules different? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure. When you're in battle, you basically want to do anything you can to win. So I... I don't know. That's a good question. Between privateers and actual naval ships during time of war, I imagine they employed the same tactics, but the naval ships were much more sophisticated in their battle plans and uh, much more well-trained than the privateers. The privateers were sort of the freelance hired uh, mercenaries. So privateers didn't get paid anything either? They, only, they solely got a percentage of the booty? Yeah, it was no prey, no pay. If you didn't capture a ship... You didn't get paid. And that created a problem because a lot of times some privateers who were unsuccessful decided, hey, maybe we're not just going to attack ships that are enemies of our country right now. And they veered into piracy, pure and simple. Okay. And did they have contracts for the privateers 
as far as how what percentage of the booty they got or yes yes they would all, it was laid out in the contract and like the government would get a certain percentage the owner of the ship that's being sent out would get a certain percentage and the people on board the ship would get a certain percentage and the smallest percentage would go to the people that were actually crewing the ship but if you were a successful privateer you could make a very good income and as you certainly know during the American Revolution and the War of 1812 the United States or the America and then the United States had and employed a huge number of privateers, and they helped win both of those wars. And did, some people got very rich from it. Did non did potential victims of privateers travel in groups to protect against them, and then and did privateers travel in groups to counter that? No. Yes, sometimes merchant ships would travel in convoys to add <coughs> additional. Uh, protection and privateers would sometimes gang up to attack those convoys or attack attack particularly large ships. But oftentimes privateers were acting on their own and they were going where they thought the prey might be. And a lot of merchant ships were often alone at sea. It, it wasn't as common to have convoys all the time. And just think how large the ocean is. Actually coming into contact with another ship that might potentially attack you wasn't something that was going to happen every single day. It happened every once in a while. I was wondering about the risk. Like going from, give me a, a, a trip and what the risk might be, like one in a hundred or one in four that you'd get spotted by somebody. Boy, you ask hard questions. <laughs> I mean, was the, was the, were the seas swarming with privateers and pirates or was it, Oh, we didn't expect the privateer. No, no, they pe no the seas, especially about pirates. Like at the height of piracy in the seventeen early seventeen hundreds, the time that most people have heard about when the pirates of the Caribbean and Blackbeard was active, there were as many as four thousand pirates okay. on scores of ships uh, traveling around. So the you could encounter a pirate ship, especially if you were coming out of a major port, because yeah. pirates tended to hang around. Right. You're not going to hang around in the middle of the, the ocean. Right. You're going to hang out where it's, the likelihood of is pretty high. And the same with privateers. I don't talk about privateers in the book other than to define them as different from pirates, but privateers during uh, certain wars, there were thousands of privateers uh, okay. traveling around. And how about the numbers of pirates? More or fewer uh, pirates? And we can get into how the pirates and privateers may diff differ other than the, the motive, the, the, the letter of Mark. Right. So were there more or fewer yeah. pirates or pir privateers? Uh, during the time that I'm talking about, uh, when the pirates were active is not during times of war, except King okay. William's war in the late seven, okay. 1600s. So they weren't really active at the same time, uh, especially during the war of the Spanish succession between 1702 and 17. 13, there were very few pirates, but there were thousands of privateers. But then when the war ended, all those privateers are suddenly put out of business. So some of the privateers transferred and took their skills and became pirates. Okay. So it was a slow time. I'm going to become a pirate. Right. Well, or if there's no other uh, opportunities for gainful employment. <laughs> now, what was the period when pirates were most active? Well, the golden age of piracy is from the late 1600s through the mid-1720s, and there's sort of two different phases wow. of piracy. Before 1700, most of the pirates were either active in the Caribbean or the ones that I focus on in the American colonies. 
they were heading out, going around the Cape of Good Hope, going into the Indian Ocean, and they were attacking Mughal or Muslim Indian ships traveling between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. They would plunder those ships of treasure, coins, uh, silk, cloth, whatever they can get their hands on, jewels, and then they'd bring it back to the colonies where they were welcomed in the colonies because in many cases, these so-called Red Sea men were the sons, brothers, and fathers of the colonists themselves. So it wasn't really a lifestyle for them. It was sort of a temporary form of employment, illegal employment, albeit, but employment where they were able to plunder, quote-unquote, heathens and infidels halfway around the world, take the money from them, bring it back to the colonies that were starved of money and treated rather shabbily by the mother country, and thereby benefit the colonies so the pirates were welcome. But then you go into the 1700s, and we can talk about this later, you have a totally different kind of piracy. Instead of going into the Indian Ocean, they were attacking merchant ships, American and English merchant ships along the coast of the American colonies. So the pirates went from being uh, sort of commercial angels and people that were welcomed because they were doing something to benefit the colonies to uh, dangerous raiders who threatened colonial trade. And one thing that's so true about piracy, as is also true about almost any historical uh, theme that you want to talk about, you have to see where the money's going and who's benefiting. And who's benefiting will determine how they view the person who's benefiting them. So if, if pirates are benefiting you, you love them. If pirates are attacking you and they're taking money out of your pockets, you hate them. And, and you like pirates if they're harming your enemy. Probably. Yeah, you like pirates if you're harming your enemy, and there are some cases of pirates who settled in the colonies and sort of became part of the community, but they also were very useful during times of war or when uh, foreign ships were attacking the colonies because they would get back in their ships and they would lead men and sort of a, a nascent uh, military force and defend the colonies. Was this... I'm trying to think of when the heyday of the whaling industry was, was, and were the whaling ships a target ever? Did they have anything that? No, whaling ships. Well, think about it. Whaling ships. Uh, a first dead of whale all, towing. For, they're towing a dead whale. That's it. Right. Or well, whaling ships don't have a lot of treasure on board. They right. have a lot of uh, whale oil. Yeah. And whale oil can be valuable, but it's very bulky, very difficult to transport. And pirate ships weren't designed to take that on board, or did they have opportunities to sell it? But the other thing is. Pirate ships, pirates a lot of times wanted to trade up to get a better ship, a faster sailor, a bigger ship, one with more armaments. Whaling ships, although they were fairly large, were generally dull sailors. They weren't speedy, speedy ships. So I can't imagine any upstanding pirate wanting to take over a whale ship and make that their flagship. So okay. between the... The, the qualities of the ship and the fact that those ships didn't have much in the way of money on board. Whale ships were a very poor target. So you ready to take a call? Sure. All right. Bernie and Carlisle. Bernie never calls, so this is good. Hi, Bernie. Hi. Uh, I'd like to add a little something about piracy uh, on the, in the Carolinas, for example. The town of Nags had got its name because uh, these were pirates without ships. Uh, they would tie a lantern around a horse's neck, walk him up and down the beach at night, and it was a common practice for a ship to follow another ship 
to if they're not exactly sure where uh, they're supposed to go, well, they would follow uh, this horse's uh, with the lantern around his stick into shallow waters, and now you have a shipwreck, and the pirates would row out out in their uh, rowboats and uh, attack the ship. Uh, also, uh, they would uh, put a uh, a metal barrel on the sh- on the sand dunes, cut a hole in the barrel or a door, and build a fire in that barrel. And when they saw a ship on the horizon in the moonlight, they were actually called moon cursors because of uh, how they uh, had to work uh, at night or moonlight. Well, I, I, can, I can add something to explain this. Okay. They're, they're called uh, moon cussers. That's sort of the New England slang, and that's because they cursed the moon because on dark nights, on bright nights, uh, ships could actually see where they're going. Whether or not they ever used a cow or a donkey or a horse with a, a light on its back or tied to its tail, which is the story that's most often told, uh, I, I don't think that was the case. There are cases of false lights, which is what they're called, people putting lights up on poles to simulate where a lighthouse might be. And the reason that would confuse a sailor is that lighthouses not only tell people where to go, where an inlet might be, but they also warn people away from rough areas or dangerous areas. And if you suddenly see a light where you didn't, you know, you might get confused. You might think it's another lighthouse. So if you're a mariner who knows that part of the coast fairly well and you think, oh, there's a lighthouse there, I've got to watch out for X, Y, and Z, but X, Y, and Z isn't there because you're not actually looking at the lighthouse you think you're looking at. You're likely to ground or uh, come, come, in, come in shore. I wouldn't call those people pirates. They were There's a, a very long history, both in Europe and in America, especially on Cape Cod and certainly in North Carolina, of people taking advantage of wrecks and salvaging wrecks that come in. And there definitely were false lights. But I looked for it really hard because I wrote a book called uh, Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse. And that was one of the stories I talked about. Uh, and I looked really hard in the historical record, and I couldn't find any contemporary uh, writings that talked about these animals actually being used, but there definitely were false lights because the federal government at one point passed a law uh, fining people $5,000 for putting up a false light. And during the American Revolution, the British were very concerned about what the Americans were doing to lure British ships into dangerous waters, and they put out statements to British mariners and naval men to watch out, to beware of false lights, because we think the colonists are going to be putting them up to get our ships in trouble, basically lure them into or give them misdirections so they come upon a shoal. Misdirections. I suppose if you knew that there was a lighthouse in the area and you knew that the basic instruction for a captain seeing that lighthouse was be go 2,000 feet to the left of this lighthouse. Right. So then you put that lighthouse 2,000 feet from there, and they see that, go 2,000 feet to the left, and end up right on the rocks. Yeah, and, and to bring this back to piracy, there's a great story that probably a lot of your listeners know about of the, uh, the pirate ship Witta with Captain Sam Bellamy that was full of riches that he and his men had taken from the ship when they captured the Witta. It had just sold 500 slaves in Port Royal, Jamaica, so it had a lot of money on board. 
And they came up north, and when they were coming out the outstretched arm of Cape Cod, a nor'easter blew down the coast, and the Witta sank only about 1,500 feet from the shore of Wellfleet and East Ham area. And it stayed buried there. The treasure stayed buried there for 284, 85 years until Barry Clifford, a salvager and diver, found it in the early 1980s. But the reason that I mention that is when that ship sank, only two people survived. And they clawed their way up the cliffs of Wellfleet, and they went to a local farmer's house. When the farmer heard that they were the survivors from a pirate wreck, he didn't want the guy to rest beside his hearth. He threw the guy onto his horse and his wagon and said, show me where this wreck was. And he went back down there because he wanted to plunder whatever was going to come ashore from this wreck. And by the next morning, there were hundreds of people from the Cape walking up and down the shore, getting in their boats, trying to get whatever treasure or anything that washed ashore from this wreck. And when the governor asked for all the money that they had found and the other items to be given back, None of those Cape Codders gave it back because they didn't want to give it to the crown. They wanted to take the treasure and keep it for their posterity. So there's a long tradition of taking advantage of wrecks in America. So there must there may be artifacts in some, handed down from well, family absolutely. to family that actually came from that ship. How did the money float? Wouldn't that... No, the money doesn't float. It can get washed in by major storms. Oh, it can. It was only 1,500 feet or 1,000 right. feet from shore. Wow. And over the years, many people looked for the Witta wreck, but they were unsuccessful. However, many people going along the shore and in the shallows did find coins. Uh, this one guy in the early uh, 1900s, he found something like 750 uh, coins from that era along the beach and in the shallows. But it took uh, the real intense survey work of Barry Clifford and his men to find where the widow was, and they have recovered thousands and thousands of doubloons and pieces of eight and gleaming treasure. Thank you very much. Great call. Really appreciate that, Bar uh, Barney. We have Eric J. Dolan, author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates, and we have Peter in Boston. Barney was a great call. Let's see. What Peter has for us. Hi, Peter. Well, I, I was, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I'll, I'll, I'll reach that high esteem. Uh, my, uh, I haven't had a chance to, to, to read uh, the author's book. It's fascinating. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.
topic. I, I have read a lot about it. So here's my, I pose a question to, well, who would you think in, in your review of, of pirates, the most su- successful were, for example, you got Francis Drake in 1588. He was, he robbed a lot of things in the Spanish galleons, end up turning out you know, the Spanish Armada. Then you got Henry Morgan who captured Panama and took all the silver from there. And last, and, and the other big one that I always read about uh, is, uh, is, uh, is is the uh, is what was his Bartholomew Roberts? I, I think right. if I remember, he captured more ships than any other, much more than Blackbeard or uh, a lot of these other pirates. So just take your answer off the air. But also Roberts, if I remember correctly, uh, one of the governors wanted to hang him, and uh, he was so upset with it. That, and these pirates were tough guys. He actually went out, captured him, and hung him. And uh, Joe, take your answer off the air. <laughs> thank you. Okay, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, a very good list of pirates that you uh, talk about. Sir Francis Drake, of course, uh, many people in England consider him a privateer, but actually he was attacking Spanish ships when England and uh, Spain were nominally at peace. And when he came back, he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth for enhancing her income by almost equal to her normal annual income and bringing her plenty of jewels and sort of gave truth to the statement that nobody's a pirate unless you're peers say or so. The Spanish thought he was a pirate and were very upset with Queen Elizabeth. And then Henry Morgan, of course, sacking Panama in 1671. He didn't get as much treasure as he'd hoped because uh, the governor of Panama had knew of his advance and uh, sort of set a booby trap for him. Uh, the, the city went up in flames. A lot of the ships had already taken off with much of the treasure, but he still got a very handsome treasure from Panama City. And and Roberts, uh, Black Bart, certainly was successful in terms of capturing many, many ships and having a mini armada. But in the end, he uh, died in battle. And uh, I think some upwards of 70 of his men were hanged on the African coast. But I do want to make it clear that my book, even though it mentions each one of those uh, individuals and talks about them at some length, I focus much more directly on the pirates that came from the American colonies in the late 1600s and early 1700s, and those that attack ships along the American coast. So again, all three of those pirates get plenty of airtime in my book, but they're not the main focus. And one of the pirates that I focus on that was very successful is Henry Avery, who uh, was one of the Red Sea men, and he attacked a, uh, a ship called the Ganja Sawe, which was owned by the emperor of uh, the Mughal emperor, Rangzeb. And that ship had hundreds of thousands of dollars of treasure, pounds sterling of treasure on board. And uh, the thing that's amazing about Henry Avery is not only did he plunder that ship and some other ships, but he decided after a few years he was going to pack it in and no longer be a pirate. And he actually made it all the way back to Ireland and sort of faded into the mists. He was never caught. Some of his men were caught, tried, and hanged. But uh, he was never caught. And he became a folk hero of sort. There was even a play written about him, The Successful Pirate, that had a long run on Drury Lane in London where they imagined that he had retired to an island in the Indian Ocean with one of the emperor's daughters. And he had this uh, amazing and wealthy kingdom that he had established, which is total baloney. But uh, he was one of the early mythical pirates that uh, managed to melt back into society with his riches. Did most pirates meet a grisly end? Yeah, most pirates, most pirates not only met a grisly end, but also 
you'd be shocked if you really, if when you look at the data, how few pirates made a lot of money. Uh, now, I have to make a distinction. The pirates before 1700, the Red Seamen, a lot of them did make a decent amount of money, and they actually retired with their riches. There were many pirates, individuals on ships, who could end their short career maybe uh, taking two or three trips, and they could have anywhere from one to 3,000 pieces of eight, which back then, put that into perspective, a merchant, a captain of a merchant ship would only make about 72 pieces of eight or dollars a year. So if you end up getting 2,000 and you compare that to a common laborer that only made 10 pounds per year, uh, that's quite a good deal. The pirates after 1700, such as Blackbeard, Blackbeard was not a successful pirate at all. He had a good public relations man after he died. But during his very short career, which lasted less than two years, he did not accumulate a massive amount of wealth. And then he met a very grisly end when Lieutenant uh, Robert Maynard met Cat Blackbeard and his men off of Ocracoke Island. And Maynard was a naval lieutenant. And he and his men uh, defeated Blackbeard's men and then killed Blackbeard and severed his head and put it on the bowsprit of his sloop. And then they pitched Blackbeard's headless body into the murky waters of Pamlico Sound, where, according to legend, it took a few laps around the sloop before sinking from sight. So uh, It's grisly, all right. It is grisly, and there were a lot of hangings. There were hundreds of hangings throughout the Atlantic and close to 70 just in uh, Boston, Charleston, and Newport. Did they hang people on the common, pirates, or did they hang no, them closer no, they, to no, the beach? No, no. since, pi since pi piratical crimes took place in the ocean and they were under the purview of the Admiralty Court, people that were hanged were hanged between high tide and low tide at a gallows that was erected there because it was common practice after the person was hanged to let three cycles of the tide go by to sort of wash the body three times, almost a symbolic ablution of their sins. So a lot of pirates in Boston, for example, where we're very close to, were hanged right near where Copps Hill Burying Ground is, down by the water where the ferry that used to go to Charleston was on Hudson's Point. And then they would often be rowed out after they were killed, after they died through the hangings, they would be rowed out to Nix's Mate, a small island about five miles out into the harbor, and they'd be buried there. Sometimes there were pirates that were hung up as a warning to other seafarers, like hung up on a gibbet. And uh, so whenever you came into Boston Harbor as a mariner, you saw this guy hanging from a yard arm, essentially, or a wooden gibbet. And uh, it was supposed to scare the heck out of you and make you decide not to become a pirate. So there are a lot of pirate bones on Nix's Mate? Well, probably. Well, Nix's Mate used to be a, an, an island of about an acre in size. Now Na it's about now it's, 100 feet across? Yeah, yeah. now it's not really an island. It's basically a navigational beacon. And I imagine that there oh. might be bones. My guess is that all the bones have, have dissolved. And Henry and uh, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, I'm totally spacing on his name. Rose Snow. Edward, Edward. Edward Rose Snow. Yeah, he, was, he wrote a lot of books on pirates and stuff. And he was always searching around the islands of Boston Harbor for treasure and bones. And I'm not sure he found uh, much of either. <laughs> How much is a piece of eight? Well, a piece of eight was an eight real coin at the time. It was a silver coin that was minted. The ones that the pirates were uh, most interested in were the ones that were minted in uh, Potosi or modern-day Bolivia and Central America. And it was this eight real coin 
And it was roughly what the, Sp the Spanish silver dollar was the basis for the American dollar. And it wasn't necessarily equivalent to a British pound, but it was on par with that. But it was the first universal cur currency. You could find Spanish dollars or pieces of eight in America, in Europe, even as far away as in China and, and the Indies. So it was, it was an amazing— So uh, that made them valuable. You could spend them anywhere. Yeah, they were fungible. They were very valuable. And uh, the reason they were called pieces of eight is because a lot of times— people would chop them into pieces of eight to sort of, it's almost like change. And that's where our, our phrase two bits come from for a quarter because the American dollar was based on the Spanish silver dollar. So two out of eight pieces of an eight real coin is one quarter or a quarter of a dollar. <laughs> That's so that, cool. Yeah. Did you say? Did you spell that out in your book? I mean, that alone yeah, makes yeah. it worthwhile. I, that, that, that's actually, there's so much good stuff in the book yeah. that that's only in a, in a footnote. Okay. <laughs> now, black flags, blue waters, uh, did, did they really have black flags? Why yes. Would, why would they do that so you'd be easily identified as a pirate from far away? Why wouldn't they fake it and have like a friendly flag? Oh, when they did, they did both. Oh, depending, okay. depending on the ship they were coming upon, if they thought they were coming upon a French ship, they may they may raise French colors to sort of lure, lull them into a false sense of security. And then when they get close enough to really survey the ship, then up would go the black flag. And the black flag was intended to be a terrifying calling card. They had such a violent brand identity, pirates, that very few merchant ships wanted to fight a pirate ship. So once you saw the black flag go up the mast, Nine times out of ten, they would surrender. But every once in a while, pirates would have to fight for what they wanted. And that every once in a while became so potent. You, you, there, was a, there was a great article in a, the Boston Post Boy that I, uh, that I talk about in the book where they said the problem is merchant ships and the people on them will not fight the pirates because they've heard all the stories about how viciously the pirates treat those <laughs> who resist them, so they're not willing to put up any defense. And that's really the way the pirates got most of their uh, ships. They, they surrendered. So that was the value of the black flag. Oh, it absolutely. Paralyzed them with fear into giving up. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a calling card. It was, it was their brand. And not every pirate had a black flag, but a lot of them did. And it was only in the 1700s. The ones, the Red Seamen that I talked about before, the ones that went to the Indian Ocean, they did not— use the black flag. It really started after the War of the Spanish Succession, for the most part, in 1713, 1715, the Pirates of the Caribbean, I mean, Blackbeard, Edward Lowe, uh, Steed Bonnet, Charles Worley, you know, all these pirates, many of whom your listeners probably never heard of, uh, had black flags. And that's another thing that I just want to say. The book talks about these popular pirates that everybody's heard of, of course, Blackbeard. But I found it even more interesting, the great number of pirates that you probably never heard of, but whose deeds were you know, just as despicable, and they were really horrible or fascinating uh, people. Black flags, blue waters, epic history of America's most notorious pirates. Yeah, pirate myths? Pirate, yeah, there are, Can we do pirate myths? Sure, there are plenty of pirate myths. Probably one of the top ones has to do with walking the plank. Okay. Uh, all the movies we see, the pirates make their victims walk the plank. There is no evidence that any pirate during the Golden Age uh, had any of their victims walk the plank. Why would they? There are plenty of easier ways to kill people. 
Yeah, you getting a plank all set up seems yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, you got to run through the cutlass. You could shoot them, pitch them over the side. There are a few instances in the 1800s of some pirates in the Caribbean using a plank, and uh, there are probably a couple of instances of Chinese pirates, but it's, it's not something that is uh, that the, the Golden Age pirates ever did. It's more a byproduct of of Hollywood that's really blown it out of proportion. The same thing with uh, you know peg legs. People had peg legs back then. People uh, pirates lost their legs, cannon shots and the like. But think about it: you're on a ship, a rolling ship, or going around the ocean. It's tough enough to get around on two good legs. If you had your leg blown away and you had to get a prosthetic leg or a peg leg, the odds are you would be off the ship fairly soon. You'd be out of the pirate business. Yeah, and they actually had a social security system built into the pirate code where if you lost a limb, you would get a certain number of pieces of eight, maybe 500 pieces of eight. So it was a way of compensating them for uh, injuries on the job. Yeah, pirates had that. It was really fascinating. How about the parrot? Parrot on the pa- shoulder? No, the parrot's not a myth, especially in the Caribbean. A lot of people had these animals. A lot of parrots were on board ships. Uh, I'm not sure that they always walked around with the parrot on their shoulder. But, but pirates but, tended to favor having parrot pets. Yeah, they, many of them had There's There is evidence that they had pets. I'm not if, sure how many of them. If I had to guess, I would say that it's more likely the plank would be real than the parrot. So the parrot was yeah. more real than the plank. Yeah, according I, to... I, I don't talk a lot about parrots in the book. Because that's really the Caribbean. Okay. Uh, they didn't really take them up north, uh, and I'm not sure how many pirates actually had parrots. Another another myth has to do with burying treasure. That's the famous one with Captain Kidd. Uh, they've been looking for Captain Kidd's treasure for hundreds of years, all the way from Delaware to Oak Island, Nova Scotia. Nobody's found it, and nobody will because there's no evidence that any pirate buried their treasure. Think about it. There's no guarantee they're ever going to get back there to get their treasure. Right. A lot of pirates spent money as quickly as they got it. And also, if you left your treasure someplace buried, you know somebody else may come along and find it. So that's another myth. Uh, another another. I don't know if it's a myth, but the word arg or ar. Right, right. I that, was. I, I didn't. I wasn't sure if I should ask that one or that, not. <laughs> that is uh, again not likely arr, a word that any matey. Pi- pirate used or shiver me timbers. There was there was an actor Robert Newton who was in a bunch of Disney movies in the mid 1900s, uh, and he played Blackbeard and Long John Silver, and he came from the southwest part of England where there's a very common phrase r. It's sort of like a the Canadians use. Yeah. And he threw around R's and Arg's and Shiver Me Timbers and I Mateys with relish in his movies. And he did such an over-the-top job that it became embedded in our culture, cultural lexicon. But again, that's more Hollywood than it is reality. Why do people love pirates so much? I mean, they are criminals. Uh, is it that, a- that's a really good question. I think it's the abstract notion of sort of throwing your... Your, maybe your mundane job aside, whatever, going on the open ocean, having the freedom to go wherever you want, plundering at will, drinking with your buddies, and having a grand old time on the waves. I mean, I think it's that abstract notion. And also there's something about human nature where we love the bad boys and girls of history. You know, why do we love watching movies about murderers? Murderers are horrible people, but we love watching those movies. It strikes me that... People love pirates for the same reason they love rock stars. Rock stars, they say, the heck with the man. Right. I'm just going to get a guitar and I'm going to be bad. I'm going to go from city to city, tearing up hotel rooms and having my way with the local 
Right. It's, it's ladies transgressive. Yeah. They, and the same exact thing for pirates. Yeah. They're, they're throwing over norms and they're doing what they want. And, but you have to watch out. I mean, that's abstract. And that's why people I think love pirates. And certainly Hollywood has capitalized on that by showing pirates often as having endearing qualities. And maybe some of them did, but in reality, a lot of pirates were pretty miserable thugs on the ocean and they weren't lovable, endearing characters, but that's not, that's fine. I love the Hollywood movies. So, so they wouldn't bury their treasure. They would most likely go to the next port and, and spend it on drink yeah. and food. Or if they were, were lucky enough to retire, they would retire on it. But and and uh, unlike popular beliefs, most of them were not rich. They were just grinding it out on a weekly basis. Yes, most pirates Grinders. definitely were not rich. Yeah, Grinder pirate. <laughs> Grinder pirate. All right, this leaves me enough time to give an adequate goodbye to our excellent, excellent guest who not only writes an awesome book, but is really good on the radio. Thanks a lot. Oh, you're welcome. Eric Thank J. You. Dolan, Black Flags, Blue Waters, The Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates. And if you like that, we heard a little allusion to a lighthouse book, and there's also Leviathan. Can you right. describe those in 30 seconds? Well, Brilliant Beacons, A History of the American Lighthouse is a 400-year narrative history of Americans' coastal sentinels, and it's uh, fascinating. I mean, it involves there's an entire chapter on the Civil War and the American Revolution. It's got everything. And then Leviathan, A History of Whaling in America, is just that. It's a history of whaling going back to the pilgrims all the way up through the early uh, 1900s. And if you ever read Moby Dick, this is the real story. And uh, it's just absolutely fascinating. It's one of my favorite books. Any chance you'd come back and talk about those? Sure. As well? Yeah, I like, talk about anything. Come back twice. Talk about sure. Lighthouses and Leviathan. Sure. Because you're a really great guest on the radio. Oh, thanks. Thank yeah, you. Sure. So it's WBZ. Wasn't that great? With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.